Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Welcome to Behind the Knife. My name is Dan Sheese. I'm a general surgery resident at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia, currently spending my research years in a necrotizing enterocolitis basic science lab up at Johns Hopkins, as well as working with Behind the Knife as one of the surgical education fellows. I'm excited to share with you all a new podcast series that I will be hosting called Innovations in Surgery, where we'll be highlighting different surgical innovations that have previously or will soon improve the field of surgery. To kick off this series, we are lucky enough to have Dr. Daniel Hashimoto, who is an assistant professor of surgery at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania and the director of the Penn Computer Assisted Surgery and Outcomes Laboratory. He previously completed his general surgery training at Massachusetts General Hospital, where he was also the associate director of research of the Surgical AI and Innovation Laboratory. He is vice chair and co-founder of the Global Surgery AI Collaborative, a nonprofit that oversees and manages a global data sharing and analytics platform for surgical data. Additionally, he is editor of the textbook Artificial Intelligence in Surgery, Understanding the Role of AI in Surgical Practice. Welcome, Dr. Hashimoto, to Behind the Knife. Thank you so much. This is super exciting. I've listened to you guys for a long time since I was a resident, and uh, so it's very fun to be on. Thank you. So what you didn't mention is that uh, Dan and I went to uh, medical school together, and I actually uh, had procured a number of stories that I was going to share about Dan in medical school. Uh, but uh, as I went through them, I realized none of them were appropriate for the podcast, unfortunately. So we're going to keep those <laughs> off off the air. But Dan has gone on to do amazing things. And, and uh, Dan, I'm thrilled to have you on the podcast as an, as an old friend and, and so excited about the work you're doing in artificial intelligence. So to get us started, uh, I, maybe you could share for all the listeners and, and including the Luddite kind of surgeons like myself, like what what is artificial intelligence and machine learning? And then to follow that question of how does that apply more broadly to surgery? Because we're going to talk in detail about what you're doing in, in, in the lab. But let's let's start with that. Yeah, no, that, that's a great question. And I think it can be tough because there's a lot of obviously in, in press, like largely like in sort of the lay press, when you think about newspapers, magazines, online and things like that, not even to mention the, the scientific surgical literature, where a lot of times these terms are used interchangeably, right? Like you might see AI and machine learning used sort of as the same term. But to sort of simplify things, I like to think of AI as sort of like the parent field category um, that really describes the field of study um, of really sort of trying to make any sufficiently uh, complex software that mimics human behavior on some sort of task. Right. It's a little bit different than the movies where you think about an AI that can do everything, like these robots that are super intelligent and, and mimic human beings. It's really more about can you have a machine do some sort of task in a way that approximates human abilities or maybe even exceeds them? A little bit different than machine learning, which is really the study of algorithms that learn from data. I guess maybe that's sort of like the one liner about it. That's not to say these definitions are sort of the end-all be-all. There's lots of different definitions, but I think those are sort of good sort of starting points for surgeons to think about what is an AI. It's something that can 
do my job as a human being, maybe as well as I can, hopefully better one day, but is trying. Right. And, and there's a difference to that end uh, between automation in terms of what machines do in surgery and augmentation. And from what I understand, the work you're doing uh, in the near future is really focused on augmentation. Yeah, that's right. I think um, the reality is whenever you think about bringing technology into the clinical workspace, and particularly in the operating room like we're in, we want to make sure it's safe. And I think that we're not quite at the point that we can safely say, dear AI, please do this job for me automatically. Please do this uh, you know, incision or anastomosis for me automatically. There's a lot of good preliminary research that's being done, with really promising results. But right now, the safest approach is to say, how can an AI make me as a human being better at my job? You've previously set up the Surgical Artificial Intelligence and Innovation Laboratory and recently started the Penn Computer Assisted Surgery and Outcomes Laboratory. Can you tell us more about these labs and what your research focuses on? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think both of these labs are really the efforts of collaboration across surgeons and engineers. Um, so SAIL, the Surgical AI and Innovation Lab that's at Mass General, it's run by a good, very good friend of mine, Dr. Osnan Morales. Um, who's a minimally invasive and bariatric surgeon, and Dr. Guy Rossman, who was um, when when I was a resident of postdoc at MIT. Um, and that came about really through concerted efforts that took place um, with the support of our chair, Dr. Lolomo, on how we can better understand what's happening in the operating room in a somewhat automated way, right? Like if you think about the types of data that we're used to working with in surgery, we have lots of studies that look at pre-op risk predictors, right? To try to predict who's safe for surgery and what kind of outcomes they might have. And once we have an outcome, we have a lot of registries and claims databases that can tell us, well, which of those patients had a complication? But what we didn't really have was, well, what happened in the operating room? Um, you might have op reports, but we know from some studies that were done in Europe, about 27% of operative reports are either incomplete or even worse, totally wrong. And so there is no real objective record of what happened, um, sort of at the moment to moment. Um, we've all seen those op reports, right, for a lap coli that's like, oh, the critical view of safety was achieved and the duct and artery were clipped and cut in the standard fashion. There were no complications. And then the next thing you know, they're in the emergency department two weeks later with the bioloma, et cetera, et cetera. And you look back at the ad op report and you're like, what happened? Um, the goal of an initiative like SAIL was to say, well, we use cameras in the operating room and we have technology that's being used to analyze camera data in self-driving cars and our cell phones, et cetera. Can we apply those types of technologies to the operating room and see if we can extract information and understand events in the operating room? And so that's what's really led to this sort of organized effort uh, at Mass General through SAIL and now at Penn um, with Picasso, the Computer Assisted Surgery and Outcomes Lab, to try to understand these events, make them sort of... Um, automatically reviewable so that somebody doesn't have to sit there for hours on end watching these operations all over again um, and try to give us concise insights that can integrate into the rest of the data flow that we get from our daily practice. Yeah. And so um, that involves a lot of real smart guy stuff for sure when it comes to this, the AI, the getting this data together and all that, but it also as you mentioned, is political in some way, right? 
there's medical legal concerns, et cetera, bringing cameras and video recording into the operating room. What kind of challenges have you come up uh, against in that respect? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that um, for this type of work, you can imagine it raises a lot of anxiety, not just on the behalf of surgeons who might say, well, what do you mean you want to record my operation? But also on behalf of risk management lawyers in the hospital who are like, what do you mean you want to record this operation? Um, But uh, really, it's been sort of some of it has largely been cultural in the sense of a lot of us still have recorders that you have to physically put in a USB drive or worse, a DVD to record a case. Mm-hmm. And then what do you do, right? You're going to have it in your shelf or on a, in the bottom of a bag that you carry to the operating room. And then what do you do with it? Most people don't record video because they say, well, this video is not going to go to any use. It's just going to take up space and nobody's ever going to analyze it. So part of the effort has been demonstrating to surgeons that actually we have technology now that helps us uh, digest and analyze these videos in a very efficient manner. And that we have partnered with other organizations to help us do this safely and in a way that minimizes medical legal ramifications. Um, there's actually been several groups uh, that have looked into partnering with patient safety organizations, um, which protect that data for quality improvement purposes. Um, and I think that's a way that we're going to be able to move a lot of this field forward. Yeah. And, and, and the culture, cultural shift has already changed, right? I mean, the, most institutions have consent forms that include photography and video for educational purposes. There are uh, coaching platforms uh, for uh surgeons to record their videos and either get live or after the fact coaching. And even most recently, the general surgery news just this week, there was a whole article about standardizing recording, uh, the recording of cases um, uh, for quality assurance purposes, education, et cetera. Um, But as you mentioned, it does raise a lot of, a lot of questions and concerns, but that's an interesting part about the work you do that goes beyond the the true side just the science the basic science because you have to find that data somehow and you have to shift culture and and influence change in that respect but but it seems like we're as a community surgery is moving in that direction and that that'll probably accelerate yeah absolutely i think that uh every every year since we started this work i've sort of noticed more and more um that that People are more interested. I remember the first time I talked about this at a surgical meeting, everybody sort of was like, what? (laughs) And then now there's like entire sessions at the American College of Surgeons or SAGES uh, around AI. So it's been really great to see the community um, really come together and say, you know what? Our goal is to operate on patients in a safe manner and to continually improve ourselves. How can we leverage technology to do that? And so that's been really the exciting part about being a part of this work is to really see in action how much you know our community really cares about getting better and getting data to make ourselves better. From looking at your CV, you've had just a ton of success with your AI work. Um, so in med school for me, I had absolutely zero exposure to this field at all. How did you get interested in this field and how did you take that initial interest and get where you are now? Yeah, um, totally accident. It was totally an accident. <laughs> uh, you know, I had no intention of being an AI researcher. I only had a vague understanding of what AI was when I was in medical school, too. Um, it really grew out of an interest that I had uh, in, in both college and medical school about understanding surgeon performance. 
uh, my initial work when I was in college and med school was around uh, surgical education and and understanding virtual reality simulators and tracking metrics of performance. And when I was in grad school, um, I did my research at Imperial College in London, and I had like a 45-minute tube ride each way to get to the lab. And uh, I was reading Moneyball. And when I was reading Moneyball, I sort of started learning about, oh, you know, there are these crazy statistical measures that are uh, almost like sub-threshold that are, you wouldn't think about counting, right? This is like going beyond the strikeouts and home runs that are easily countable. Um, and, and these things are impacting wins. That's kind of like surgery. Like there's got to be things that are happening in the operating room that are impacting the outcome of the operation, but we have no way to measure that. How can we do that? So when I started my residency at Mass General, um, I had a lot of support from faculty there, Roy Fidiakon, Oz Morales, Keith Alamo, who said, well, you know, we have this pretty good engineering school across the river called MIT. Why don't you go look over there to see if anybody can help you answer this question? Um, and uh, I met a PhD student, Mikhail Volkov, um, who said, well, you know, I, I'm working on this thing with self-driving cars and understanding video. Um, can I take a look at some of your motion tracking data, which is what I was working in, um, and we'll see if we can put something together. And sort of by serendipity, his advisor was Professor Daniela Roos. She's the head of computer science and AI at MIT. And that week, uh, a family member of hers uh, had had surgery. And so when we went to go talk to her about it, she was primed to be like, oh, surgery. That's actually really important to me right now. Wow. She'd never done anything medical before. And she said, I'm interested. Like, let's yeah. see where this goes, you yeah. know? Uh, so better lucky than good, honestly. Um, and that has sort of blossomed into sort of this research arc that I've had now for almost 10 years, uh, coming on 10 years, I think, since we started the work. Um, and so I'm I'm very grateful that uh, a whole community of, of surgeons and computer scientists has been so supportive of this effort. I mean, this, this is extremely impressive. Uh, in reading through some of your publications here, I stumbled across one titled Artificial Intelligence and Surgery, Promises and Pearls. And in that publication, you mentioned four commonly used terms in AI. Now, again, for someone who is just beginning to learn more about this field, can you briefly explain what machine learning, artificial neural networks, natural language processing, and computer vision are? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so again, you know, I think Patrick and I, we talked about artificial intelligence as that big bucket category. Uh, some people are surprised to learn that AI as a term was actually coined in 1956. There was like a meeting of the minds that happened as part of what was called the Dartmouth Summer Research Program. And that's when some of the biggest names in computer science, linguistics, philosophy, basically got together for summer camp and came up with this idea about artificial intelligence. And I think like the fruits of their vision are just now being realized after this many years into something that sort of the general public can appreciate. And so machine learning is really about um, the, the, the study of algorithms and how they learn from data, right? It's very different than taking an algorithm and saying, I want you to take this variable, this variable, this variable, and this variable, and model it and tell me what the outcome is. This is really saying, I have this set of data uh, I want you to find the features that are most predictive of this task that I want you to do. So a common one that's given is, you know, identify cats, identify dogs. Um, and so you, there are different techniques to that. Neural networks is a particular type of sort of approach 
um, where if you think about the neural networks that we have in our brains, there are sort of series of neurons that are arranged in layers to process information. An artificial neural network does that with computational quote unquote neurons. You have an input layer, which is the input neuron. It has a mathematical function that it does through a hidden layer and it generates some output. It's directly related to deep learning. So deep neural networks just means you have more than three layers. And some of these deep learning algorithms are, you know, hundreds of layers deep, and that allows them to do very complex modeling of relationships. What's very cool about using those types of approaches, if you want to identify a cat, you don't have to say, I want you to look for pointy ears. I want you to look for whiskers and stripes. And that means it's a cat. You say, here's a bunch of pictures of cats. Here's a bunch of pictures of dogs. I want you to learn these representations such that when I give you a new picture, you can tell me if it's a cat or a dog. So it's a little bit more, I don't want to say quote unquote natural, but it's a little bit different than specifically telling it what to look for. The other two terms that you mentioned, um, natural language processing and computer vision, uh, I sort of like to think of those as applications of machine learning. So natural language processing really concerns itself with machine understanding of language, whether that's text or spoken language. Um, it does not necessarily need machine learning to accomplish that, but it's something that is now very frequently used. So when you speak to your cell phone, and whether you have a Google phone or an Apple phone, right, you give it a command and you can ask it to do all sorts of things. Um, that's using natural language processing to understand what you're saying and generate a response. If you're in the hospital and you have like a dictation device, most of the time you're actually dictating that to a computer who's then transcribing what it is that you've said. Even now when you call some of these transcription services, you'd like to think that there's a transcriptionist on the other end. Most of the time the computer will do the first pass and then a human being will come sort of audit it in a second pass. Computer vision is about machine understanding of images, and those images can be still photographs or videos. And I think the most common place where we see that used um, in sort of our everyday thinking is in self-driving cars. So those are very heavily loaded uh, with computer vision algorithms. And that's the type of work that I do in my lab, which is we develop computer vision algorithms to understand videos from surgery. That's one of the best explanations I've I've heard of all those terms. Frankly, that that's phenomenal. How how then how is this applied to surgery now? Uh, what are some uh, contemporary examples of some of the work you do? Maybe talk about cholecystectomies, for example, or something along those lines that are that's really a very common surgery. Yeah. So actually, cholecystectomy is probably the most studied surgery in computer vision right sure. now as applied to surgery. Um, and some of the things that we've worked on um, have included, for example, automatically identifying the steps of a cholecystectomy, which may seem sort of silly. You're like, why do I need a computer to tell me that I'm you know, dissecting the gallbladder off of the cystic plate? But it's sort of an important piece of artificial intelligence because you want the computer to understand context, right? So if the computer knows that you are trying to achieve the critical view of safety, it's not going to accidentally give you advice of, oh, let me tell you how to put your ports in, right? Because you're past that step. Um, and so it's, it's, a, it's an important part of the sort of steps of building an AI, which is sort of what we call context awareness, right? So being aware of what's going on in the actual video. 
that has then allowed us to develop even more specific algorithms that allow you to, for example, highlight the safe and unsafe areas of dissection. That was actually work that I collaborated on with a very good friend of mine, Amin Madani, who's a surgeon at the University of Toronto. Um, he published the paper in the Annals of Surgery this year, um, where we built an algorithm that can take the annotations of expert surgeons uh, from over 200 videos that were gathered from around the world. I think we had over 30 countries represented in the data set because we want it to be pretty generalizable. And surgeons would annotate not the traditional, oh, here's the gallbladder, here's the liver, here's a cystic duct. But as a surgeon, where do I feel is a safe place that I should be dissecting right now? And where is an unsafe place that I wouldn't recommend anybody dissect? And so what this algorithm allows you to do is it basically highlights in green where surgeons estimate is the safest path for you to do your dissection. And in red for sort of the stay away from this area, it's dangerous. Um, I'll send that to you guys for the show notes, but it's a pretty cool video. It, it really looks like a GPS for surgery. That's phenomenal. Now, how how does that get how does that get applied uh, in you know currently with a laparoscopic tower and the current instruments we have, for example? And then to follow up on that, outside of minimally invasive or robotic surgery, uh, how would that be applied in an open uh, type operation? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the thought is the nice thing is um, obviously in laparoscopic or robotic surgery we already have TV screens. <laughs> And so you can do either an overlay or you can bring in a second monitor that displays this overlay. I think part of the research that we still have to do is sort of the user interaction studies. So understanding how do you need to present this information to surgeons so that it is A, understandable, B, not distracting and dangerous, uh, and C, uh, welcomed by the surgeon, right? That's actually a line of research we have going uh, in my lab now. Um, in terms of how this applies to open surgery, a lot of this is very relevant to open surgery. So some people have been working specifically on this question. So Carla Pugh, uh, who's a surgeon at Stanford, uh, and Serena Jung, who's a computer scientist at Stanford, they've done some of this work in open surgery. Some other folks at the University of Toronto have been doing this as well. Open surgery is a little bit harder, though, because you can imagine how in laparoscopic or robotic surgery, the camera is inside the body, and you as a surgeon you see only what the camera sees, which means the computer also only sees the information that you're taking into account. For open surgery, you have to think about mounting a camera somewhere in space. You have problems with what's called visual occlusion, where things get in the camera's way. You also have peripheral vision. So you as a surgeon have extra information that the computer doesn't have access to that can influence your decisions. And that makes that whole modeling and AI piece a little bit more difficult. Yeah, we just, uh, part of the Behind the Knife team just got back from a week in San Antonio in which we were using um, fresh cadavers that are perfused with a pulsatile blood flow to make our upcoming trauma uh, surgery video atlas. And the reason we wanted to do it was because there's no good video of these very challenging cases, you know, trauma cases that come in the middle of the night, they come in the weekend, it's crowded, the patient's trying to die, and you can't see anything because they're, they're bleeding to death. And so one of the things that was the most challenging part of, of this project was getting good camera angles. And we're in a you know non-sterile OR, we're optimizing lighting we're optimizing our angles here there everywhere we had a head mounted camera we had side cameras overhead cameras etc and even with that we found it extraordinary extraordinarily challenging and in advance of us meeting today i was thinking about that about you know how 
difficult that that will be as opposed to uh, minimally invasive surgery. That being said, there are some people who are doing some very cool things in the engineering world around taking missing data from those cameras and reconstructing it. So they've done some Send very cool way. things around. <laughs> yeah, they've done some very cool things around generating synthetic data. It's very, right. very cool. So you've put an incredible amount of effort into this field so far. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, you helped start the Sail Lab at MassGen and recently become the director of the Picasso Lab at Penn. Where do you see your research and the field of surgical artificial intelligence at in 10 years? Yeah, I think it's easier for me to comment on my own research, but I'm willing to spitball with you guys about sort of the whole field in general. <laughs> um, for my research, I mean, the hope is really sort of, can we build this GPS for surgery, right? Um, Professor Daniela Roos used to talk about building a guardian system for surgery, um, something that can be there as sort of a second set of eyes, an, another set of quote-unquote brains, but a digital brain, right, that has access to a whole set of data that you may not have seen. Think about it. You as an individual surgeon, you might be able to do four, five, six cases a day. Some of the surgeons I've worked with maybe do 18 in a day. But a computer can be watching thousands of videos simultaneously around the world, right? It can be in multiple operating rooms at once, learning constantly. And so my goal or my hope is that in about 10 years, that we would have enough of an understanding that at least for some targeted types of procedures and targeted situations, that you as a surgeon would be able to say, you know, this is a little unusual. I may not have seen anything like this before. Let's ask the computer here if it's seen anything like this. What what other steps did other surgeons around the world take in this scenario? If the computer is able to crunch the numbers behind the pre-op and post-op data of patients it's seen before, what's the recommended next best step so that I can minimize a complication for this patient who's here in front of me? And I think that's really sort of my goal is to understand how can I use this technology to help augment the performance of surgeons? And it's not to say that some people ask, they say, oh, is this technology going to be used to help um, surgeons who are struggling? Yes, but I, it's also going to help very good surgeons because we've all encountered situations where I think we say, we would wish that, oh, if we had just a little more data, right, like we could make a better decision. We're still going to make good decisions, but this is a, a patient in front of us. We want to make the best possible decision that we can make with all the data that's humanly possible together. And I think that's the hope behind this AI technology is let's help it, let's use it to help uh, make us better surgeons. Uh, because this is our innovation series and we've trying to find the best and the brightest like yourself, we're doing really amazing things in, in, um, in the world of surgery. If folks are interested in this, especially trainees or students, uh, how would you recommend they get into this field or what kind of opportunities are there in this field uh, for folks coming up? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, what's really great now is that the field has matured to the point that there are now actually some established fellowships um, in this field. So SAIL at Mass General, for example, has a fellowship for this where they actually hire postdoctoral fellows in engineering as well as surgical residents into the lab. Um, we're planning to start doing the same at Penn. Um, we I'm just getting things up and off the ground, but probably next year we'll have an opening for that to work uh, sort of hand in hand with my engineering colleague, Dr. Eric Eaton, who's here at Penn Engineering. 
Um, and then also a lot of surgical societies now have committees around AI or surgical data science. So SAGES has a committee, the Association of Surgical Education has a committee. I know some of the urology societies as well. And so what I would recommend for trainees is actually first tap into your society for the specialty that you're interested in, or I would certainly welcome you to join the, the SAGES group uh, or the ASE group, um, because I think that's a great way to get involved and understand and know the field understand what are the projects that are coming through at the society level and also attend the sessions that are being held at these meetings. There are a lot of introductory or sort of workshop level sessions that explain AI, teach AI, and we're planning a couple of sessions that are going to sort of teach some of the basics and the programming behind this as well. That's awesome. And then you are going to include a couple links in our show notes for some pretty fantastic videos and link to some of these uh, articles, at least one of which we we had referenced uh, from Dr. Hashimoto. So please be sure to check that out and to follow along um, with Dan Sheets, our fellow who's going to be hosting this uh, amazing Innovations in Surgery series, which is going to be the first of of many. But Dr. Hashimoto's have been our inaugural guest. So thrilled to have you. And I uh, I look forward to seeing you in person soon, Dan. No, thank you very much. And let me just say that I think Behind the Knife was a great innovation. I think it totally changed the way that I approach surgical education. So again, thank you very much for having me. It changed my education, changed my residency. I think it helped me pass the boards. Uh, I'm going to give you guys a lot of credit for that as well. So it's just thank you for everything you guys do. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.